Welcome back or welcome to another episode of On Coaching. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on? Pew, pew, pew. You already know, Stephen. Time to give the people what they want. Let's go. All right. And you know, we say this every episode, but man, am I fired up about this episode. Because we get to relive our past glory and not so glory days. Um, before you jump into that, how can you not make some of the mistakes that John and I are about to talk about? You know, one of the best ways is to educate yourself. And the best track and field, distance running, endurance coaching education out there, it is the Scholar Program. If you don't believe me, just go peruse through all the things that you get from history to science to in-depth training of the best in the world through different generations. You get a glimpse of all. And the best thing about it, John, is it's not its not our philosophy. We, we give as many coaching philosophies as we can present because that is what education is. You don't go in to history class and just learn one historian's take, you got to see the ever-changing fold of views on how things unfold. And that's what we have tried to do and are continually pushing on the scholarship. We program. scour the earth. I scour eBay. I scour Amazon. I look for those old esoteric texts that are out of print that no one knows about. Scour old track and field news interview articles from the 70s, 80s, 90s. Like, we up and down, left and right. So we bring you the best of the best. It's highly curated. And guess what the great thing is? It just gets better every single week because it compounds. We just add more and more and more and more. So if you haven't joined, you're missing out because it's just so much good stuff. All right. So let's jump into this week's topic, which is the power of reflection. Mm -hmm. Looking back at dumb stuff we used to do. This is great. This is essentially us being Let's Run message boards on ourselves. Because apparently, if you read those boards, Steve and I are absolute retards. And, you know, we're not inclined to disagree on this episode. We're going to talk about the dumb stuff we did when we were younger coaches. Looking back now, you just smack your forehead and go, Oh, why would I ever do that knowing what I know now? But that's the whole point. We didn't know what we know now. Thus, we did it. Oh man, we're gonna we're gonna feed the trolls. Here's some here's some ammunition to you know hate on John and I and tell us how horrible of coaches we are. So if you're just listening for that reason, welcome. Um, but our goal here is to reflect and learn from some of these things, and you know, and really, it's also to show that coaching is a evolving practice. You know, and no one, we say this a lot, but no one has it fully figured out. And the moment you do is the moment you've gotten stuck. So we're here to kind of use that power of reflection to look back and be like, oh man, what were we thinking? And it's not to make fun of ourselves necessarily or judge ourselves or judge you if you're doing some of these things, but to challenge you to reflect and say, you know, what have I improved on? What do I need to kind of maybe reconsider? And what do I look back on and say, oh, thank goodness, I, I don't hold that training belief anymore? Yeah, it's essentially the growth mindset from, I think, uh, Carol uh, Dewick or Dewak's book. 
Um, you know, part of that comes from reflection and review. And the summertime is, you know, a key time for that uh, rest and digest, that period that co- most coaches in the scholastic system uh, get a little reprieve from the uh, everyday toil of, you know, being in the coaching crucible, you know, progressing towards a championship meet, what have you. And it's a really important time because actually this is where you get better is the depth of your reflection and then the action that's spurred by that review will then help guide your coaching practice to the next, another level moving forward. And if you don't take that period to kind of take that long drink of water, it's not just one day you sit down and you go, oh, I'm just going to review the season and this and that. The review process, the reflection process is exactly what led Steve and I to create the scholar program was seeing how other people did it who were successful and then also not successful throughout history and then incorporating elements of what they prioritized versus what elements we're prioritizing at the moment or not prioritizing and being able to synthesize that into essentially a better recipe for potential success or higher yielding of success for our athlete population. All right. Perfect summation of what we're trying to do. Let's let's dive in because I think these will be some fun quick hits. Um, one that stands out for me is something that A, I was taught, you know, and learned in, in various coaching educations. B, took a ton of time. What is it? I used to write out the entire season's worth of training. Oh, shit. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that. That was brutal. Yeah. I mean, that's what you did. But I remember at the beginning, you know, in the summer before a high school season or what have you, I'd sit down and it would take hours, you know, sometimes multiple days. But I'd sit down there, I'd have my calendar out, my pencil, and just start, you know, writing out the the training for the next, gosh, I don't know, four or five months, something like that, entirety of the season. And I'm talking detailed out workouts. You know, we're going to run 10 by 400 on you know September 25th and you know four by mile at this pace on you know November 3rd and just having it exacting the paces the reps the the, you know the the rest in between all of that mapped out I bet you felt really confident too like oh yeah I got a plan I'm so in control this season's gonna go exactly like it is gonna be written out on a piece of paper Oh, 100%. And you know, the thing is, I, I put a ton of thought into it, too. I was like, you know, here's this season here. You know, here's this meet here. And, you know, this athlete needs this and all that stuff, which is great. But I was like, this is, I was trying to create the perfect training plan. Been there. Been there. Been there. I mean, even I did exactly the same thing because you get in a lot of these introductory courses and they, you know, champion periodization and periodization as the map, the way to structure a season. And it's true. You do need a certain degree of periodization, but it's this obsessiveness about the micro and not really as much fundamentally understanding about the progression from more of the macro macro elements that, you know, creates this obsessive compulsive to track every little number and write out every little workout with every little split and have this kind of nice numerical progression. The reality is 
life is really sticky and messy and it's not going to translate to that, no matter how well planned out and prepared you are. Exactly. And you know, the, the thing is, is we're not saying not to plan. Oh, I still plan obsessively saying, for sure, but yeah. it's a different type of planning now. Exactly. You still, you know, I still put the same amount of thought care into, you know, what I'm trying to accomplish that season and what the goal is and what we're trying to address. But the difference is we're not, you know, at least in my case, like I'm not zoomed in on the micro and losing track of the macro. I would say, you know, I've zoomed back out and set and have this macro idea of what I am trying to accomplish during each period. And sometimes, you know, I'll write in, you know, workout examples or workout types where I'm like this type of workout, right? But I don't have the progression exactly micromanaged to a T on every workout every every week. Because you, you can't. Know? I mean, the truth is you can't. The right. athlete's adaptation arise in each person is going to be different. And also, too, understanding the fitness and fatigue model, they might be getting way more, a lot more fit, but they might be under a load of fatigue, not just from training fatigue, from fatigue and stressors outside, right? Work, if you're coaching an adult athlete, school pressures, you know, um, if you're coaching a scholastic athlete, other life stressors. I mean, those things do take away that nervous energy and detract from an athlete. And I think having a understanding of that and its influence and its impact is really important. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on there. And, you know, <laughs> the, the funny thing is that it, it's is your plan would get in your way. <laughs> yes. Because yes, yes. <laughs> what happened is the moment like you something starts going awry and you're just like, oh, I have to change, you know, this, this and this. Then like what happens is you go, oh no, what happens to next week? How am I going to fit in this work it out that I had planned? You know, I got to get this in. And then what happens is you start panicking and like start like jamming stuff in because you're like, well, this progression works. And once that progression is, or this progression is written down, you know, once that progression is interrupted severely, you know, it throws everything off. So in a lot of ways, and the reason that I think over planning in this regard on the micro gets in our way is it locks us in uh, even mentally to a degree and makes it a little more difficult to kind of respond in the moment of like, oh no, it's okay. Like our plan's going to deviate. The athlete is responding a little differently than I predicted back in, you know, June. Yeah. That fixed mindset, right? That um, perfectionist mindset that gets in the way I found more than actually helps. So, you know, what do we do now? Like rather than have this rigid daily itinerary of activities planned out that we think are going to have a numerical progression, what I do now is think in terms of training blocks, right? We know certain principles, have certain truths. We have about a six-week adaptation horizon for any kind of new novel stimulus that's repeated over and over and over again. And so what you're looking for, though, is it's kind of instead of like a, a book that has just a clear table of contents and goes in sequential order, 
it's more of those choose your own adventure books where you get to the end of the chapter and then you have a choice. Do you do this? Okay, go to, you know, chapter, you know, page 147. Or do you do this? Go to page, you know, 24, right? And that's really what you're doing at the end of a micro, uh, a micro block of work. So for me, I only think now in like terms of three weeks. Three weeks is like the maximum I will write out training day to day. Here's what we're going to do. And it's very fluid and can be adjusted. But I feel like in three weeks, you can go through, you know, a progression, a response, you know, a stimulus response cycle and kind of understand the general direction that the athlete is adapting, responding or not. And then from there, you can start to uh, build out that following um, period of time. So my process now is write three weeks, see how that first week goes. If it goes in the general direction I predicted or um, thought it would, then I will write out, you know, week three, the next or the third week, right? So you're always kind of like writing a week out two weeks ahead based off the feedback you got this current week. So let's say like week one, everything goes as predicted. Well, then I'll write out that fourth week of training after week one. But then let's say week two, everything just goes to absolute complete like bunk, right? Then let's go back into week three and actually just revise week three based off what week two uh, feedback was. So it's a little bit more adaptable in the moment because again, when we're dealing with adaptation, we have micro and meso, but now I think more than anything, I really respect the recovery and absorption periods that need to happen for an athlete versus being so obsessive about, oh, we got to get the work in. We got to get the work in. Yes, we do, but we got to get the absorption of the work in too. Exactly. You know, I think, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, I look at it in similar ways in the sense that um, I choose different blocks of training to emphasize either building something or maintaining something. So that's how I kind of see my training as like, oh, during this next phase, like I'm emphasizing this and then I'm maintaining this, this and this and I'll actually write it down. Yeah, I love that. You know? I love that about your philosophy, Steve. It's, I actually stole that. Like, and I have conversations yeah. with athletes now. It's like, you know, this quality or this facet is just maintenance mode. And here's the minimum amount of work we need to do with the frequency and intensity in a week or this block exactly. to maintain this quality, though, this one right here we're building this quality. So this is going to be rough stuff. And the beauty I think of that is it's simplistic, but the other part of it too, is it allows you to, you know, where we used to create progressions for every workout because we thought, Oh, this will be the best blah, blah, blah. Now, instead of that, when I look at, Oh, I'm building something, I can over time learn how an athlete adapts to a particular thing I'm building. Right. So if I'm trying to, you know, um, let's say, throw out an example, just kind of develop their threshold ability, right? Some athletes respond really well to like a traditional, like Daniel's style tempo run. Other athletes do really well with like more fartlek style kind of high end aerobics. Some athletes, special middle distance athletes to build that quote unquote threshold need more like Igloy style, like reps with very short rests. And instead of being like detailed out that, what I just, I just make notes. I'm just like, you know, 
through training, experimenting, learning, like, you know, athlete A over here, like, you know, when we're building this, probably biases more towards this, you know, towards traditional tempo runs. And that just gives me an idea. Instead of mapping it out, I know, okay, this athlete's strength is generally in this area. They've responded well in this in the past. So when I start to write these workouts, I can write them to progress in a way where I'm like, okay, I'm going to take advantage of what tends to work for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that sensitivity, right? Um, athletes who have a yeah. high sensitivity to something, that means it's going to deflate or depress their system and their delay their response or rebound from it. So best example I can give is like the yin and yang of like my wife versus Daniel Herrera um, in the mile. So my wife has a really high sensitivity to really rapid kind of like neuromuscular or fast stuff, right? So we, you know, here's a good example. We did sets of 220, 200s or 220 meters on this week. You know, uh, the goal was to do three sets of five at kind of 1500 type pace. So for her right now, that's like 34, 33, right? For 220, full recovery, two, three minutes, walk back, rest. But she only could do five in a set before she just started to feel like, all right, I'm getting fried. So then we take full recovery, eight to 10 minutes, do another one. We only got through two sets uh, of the 220s. And then the last set was just, all right, well, checking in, seeing how you're doing, and revised it in the moment to 110s, right, 110 meters, and five sets of those. Because what was the thing? I was like, oh, the thing that we're trying to get out of here is not some physiological stimulus. It's not the focus. The focus is neurological. As the old timer said, leg speed. We need the legs to coordinate and change over quickly, and we need the ground impulse to be of high force. So there's no reason to slog through a final set because I wrote it down of you know five two twenties that's thirty seven thirty six seconds when she'll get a better stimulus from cutting it down at the end here as she's tired because that's the limiting factor is this fatigue but we she can still she's still fit enough and capable enough to do like seventeen eighteen seconds of this work and get the learning impulse that we want the neurological learning that's key she actually was able to run faster like 15 second per 100 14 high and remember this is the almost 38 year old woman distance runner because we knew explicitly what we we're trying to do however that comes with it a recovery penalty right her sensitivity to that works really high so even though she has the physiological capacity to do seven eight nine miles of you know, threshold, hard, steady running right now, she's going to have to take two to three days of just easy jogging, not stressful stimulus, not a whole lot going on. And for her, actually, there'll be some longer, easier, slower pace runs in because she has a really high response or low sensitivity to that endurance type running. It actually, you know, makes her feel good. So it's like, yeah, go for like 90 minutes at a minute pace. That would actually be a recovery activity that helped her bounce back from that type of stimulus versus on the other spectrum. Daniel Herrera can do that stuff all day. He loves running fast. I mean, his system's just like, yeah, we're doing what? 15 times 200 at 25 to 24? 
feel great. <laughs> this feels awesome. I love this. And But as soon as I say, all right, hey, we're going to do, you know, repeat 1Ks or 2Ks at 440, 445 pace, he's just like, oh, Oh, or if I, you know, if I ever gave him a long run, like he's been doing some like medium longer runs, like 10 miles at like 70 minutes pace or 70 minute, uh, 70 minutes, like not hard, not fast. And he's just like, oh, it just leaves me so deflated. And I, you know, I get it, right? It's the exact inverse of the spectrum. So then I have to buffer out. What does Daniel have the following day after a kind of this medium aerobic maintenance long run? A day off nothing like <laughs> just that's your day off right because he needs that day off to then bounce back to be able to do the more highly um, stimulating and let lower sensitivity work that he he needs for being a miler so again that's a, just a clear example of you know different ways different people respond to different stimuli and then also being flexible and fluid enough to know exactly what we're trying to get at in the moment and then making adjustments to be able to get you know what i call like a nourishing amount of work in versus just slamming it down their throat and having it be be so much and too much that their system ends up vomiting half of it out through non-response because they've become so fatigued physically mentally mechanically that then like all that activity doesn't translate to achievement yep spot on spot on so, all right, we've covered this this planning, where we went wrong, where, you know, what we now do instead. John, I'm curious of something that you did back in the day that you no longer do. For me, it's back in the day, I used to think training, just doing the physical work would take care of everything. So, you know, being so focused on the physical, like, all right, we're going to do this stuff. And that stuff does matter. Super important. You need that training to adapt in a certain direction, but not spending enough time on the mental um, for each athlete and what their mental needs were. That was a big fault. Cause I just thought everyone's like me. Aaron's super fucking competitive. Everyone wants to win. Everyone knows how to win. Everyone's like going to just be motivated as shit when they're on the starting line as I was an athlete and I take that for granted people are at different places in that competitive spectrum and they need to you know what I've learned be uh, addressed and work with at where they're at and then developing them to where they want and could be and sometimes you have athletes who are really reticent to be competitive because they lack confidence they lack a sense of self-concept or security. They think, oh, if I go and be competitive and I try to win and I don't, then I'm just a failure and it's a fixed mindset, right? It's set in stone. Some athletes are a little delusional and just think they're going to walk into a race and win because they're super competitive and they go about it the wrong way by expending way too much emotional energy, physical energy in the first half of the race and they're kind of left emotionally physically bankrupt in the second half right so it's been a long journey to trying to figure out how to light that competitive fire so to speak in different personality or archetypes to get them to produce more focus and clarity and um, also enthusiasm on race day towards being competitive and 
being more, as we you hear about process oriented in how to manifest that versus simply being outcome oriented in what's going to happen, you know, in what position I might or should, or what time I'm going to run when I hit the tape. And, you know, as a really good example, like, again, going back to Herrera, cause it's just top of mind fresh. He won his first race this outdoor season on the track and he's been struggling. He struggles a lot on the track in the 15, the mile, but on the road, he's, you know, road mile, he's two time, bring back the mile champions, you know, stone cone killer. So it's, it, it's been a long journey to try to figure out, okay, Dan, how do we get it? So you are in, cause you're fit. Like you're, you're capable. Like you're, you're in the class, but how do we get it? So you can make those decisions and it comes to decision-making you know, how do we program you or give you a set of skills to make decisions in the moment that will set you up to be at least in the conversation competing for a win in the final stages on the home straightaway. And that's really what that this dialogue is about is decision making and sharpening and, dis- and uh, clarifying an athlete's decision making on race day in races. So they have a toolkit about how to make decisions that will be advantageous versus making decisions or not making decisions, being indecisive, that will be disadvantageous. I love how you frame that as training decision-making, essentially. Because, you know, I think that is such an important piece. And I'd agree 100% on what you just said. Like when I was first getting started, I just assumed, you know, if we were fit, if we did the work, the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. It was a, a and, fitness puzzle. That's all it was. We just got to get you fit enough yeah. and voila. No. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, it's done. And then as, you know, every coach finds out, and I'm sure everyone listening does, is that those times and those moments, those first moments when you get that athlete who is undou- undoubtedly fit, but they're unable to express it. And the way that you know they're capable of during a race is kind of those that aha moment where you're just like, ah, fitness is only part of this solution. Like, we've got to get it to translate to the race. And for some, as you gave that example, that translation occurs relatively easily in certain races, but not so in others. You know, you can think of it as those who look at cross country versus track sometimes same fitness different expression or roads versus track or you know athletes who move from let's say the 1500 to the 5k even though they have the fitness for the 5k sometimes especially early on in high school or coming into college the 5k is a mental hurdle or challenge that they you know aren't capable or don't have the toolbox the tools to to get through at this moment so I, I agree completely. I think it's it's like the, the easy thing to do. We get taught in a fitness world, like a physiology-based world, that, hey, get them fit enough, everything else takes care of it itself. But the reality is there's that disconnect where we have to and need to work on the expression of that fitness mm-hmm. to try and teach the athlete how to make the right decisions to uh, you know, get the most out of their performance. Steve, I love how you articulate that same fitness, different expression. Um, Gosh. Yeah. It's when I think about it, that's been a frustration, you know, for a long Mm -hmm. time 
for a lot of athletes at a lot of different levels, high school all the way through pros. Um, you know, I can even think of, um, yeah, just different athletes I've worked with where it's like they run one time, one race, and then even in the similar race of a similar distance the next week or two weeks or three weeks down the road, it's completely different, you know, race. It's a completely different run with a completely different outcome. Um, you know, whether one's better and one's worse or, you know, flip-flop, right? And so how do we create that consistency of expression when the fitness is consistent, when the work's been consistent? It's decision-making. And the thing is that I've learned is you have to be super hyper-binary in races. Races are about quick binary decisions, yes, no's. Anything else is going to kind of handcuff the athlete from doing something. So, you know, what I, what I ask now of athletes is whatever your objective is. So you may have a really concrete objective. Run this time. Run, you know, uh, compete to win, what have you. Then you have to ask yourself at every step, is this thought, is this action in sync with this objective? Yes, continue. No, you better, you better change course immediately. Because a lot of times people like focus on like, oh, the, the pain and the fatigue and it hurts and it's, it's difficult. Of course, you know, but like in my a debrief with Dan after uh, winning that um, Sunset Tour Mile in 357, he's like, you know what? It still hurts, but hurting for first is a lot different than hurting for fifth or seventh. Because he's a competitor. He has the juice, as we call it. He wants to compete to win. He does not give a shit about the time. He could care less. He just wants to, you know, be the last, be the first one to cross the tape, the last one to give into weakness. So it was framing it for Dan and just being like, okay, look, it's a game of attrition in some respects. It's who's willing to exit stage left first. Who's going to be show weakness towards what their objective is first and then, you know, subside or succumb to that weakness. And that's what you kind of see in a race. It's just people get to a, a point in the race. They just decide they don't want it enough, bad enough anymore. You know, they, for whatever reason, you know, blow up. And it's not just physical. It's also, it, it's also mental and emotional. And that's where we're struggling with Dan. It's like he's razor fit, you know, physically. There's no, there's no gaps, right, in his ability at the moment physically. It was mentally that was the thing that was holding him back. And so every... At every stage, he was having trouble with 500 to go, we noticed, this year at Portland Track Festival, at McKenzie International, of making that decision to go. And so that was where a lot of coaching conversations happened leading into this Sunset Tour mile, was just like, you just, you, it has to be, it has to just be yes, no. Is this position, is this thought, is this helping you achieve this objective of competing to win? And, you know, if the answer is no, immediately course correct immediately do the thing that is going to help achieve that objective and then don't think about it as this whole like uh, entirety of a race just for now everything's temporary so for this hundred for this straightaway for this turn like you can go as small uh, increment as you want but again you have to be binary with it is this helping me achieve my objective this action this thought this position whatever it is and from that, he was like, oh, it was super simple. He was like, I just asked better questions. 
And because I asked better questions, I got better answers. And because I got better answers, I got, I was able to do better actions. And then I had a better outcome. Very simple process, but very hard to, (laughs) you know, very hard to uh, manifest and very hard to actually set up and shifting him in that mindset, you know, was really important versus like, you know, other athletes, it's a different, it's a different um, dialogue, right? When I was coaching Tara Welling, like one week, I mean, when she was going into 2016 Olympic trials, she still needed to hit the 5K time, right? She had the 10K time, but not the 5K time. So we're like, oh yeah, you just raise your fit. You'll get up on track festival in June. And then we had like kind of a backup of that Stumptown meet just in case. Well, she gave up, jogged in a 16 flat. And then I essentially just had to have a dialogue with her and just essentially just call her a punk and said, you're better than this. What the hell? And kick her in the butt. And I go, look, that Stumptown, you're leading the whole darn thing. Like you're going with the rabbit. You're going to be right behind the rabbit. I don't care. You don't care. That's your only path is to just get out there and grind from step one, period, end of discussion, right? And if you're not grinding, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you. And so for her, I put her in a corner in that situation. There's no other option. And she ended up running, you know, a big PR, qualifying Olympics, trials, you know, back when, you know, pre-super shoe phenomena. Um, and it, but it was like nine days, right? Was the difference. So how do you go from running 16 high or 16 uh, low to like 15, 20s, right? It was just mindset shift. It was just like, this is what you got to do. And so every time she'd pass me in a lap, I just hold her accountable as if there was no other outcome no other way to respond you're doing it keep grinding this is the path no you know i just clarified her thinking even though she's like god i was really hurt i had really tough you know but i mean she executed that race flawlessly as scripted and you know uh, was able to achieve that the objective and so the clarity again how you go about clarifying for the athlete is a, is going to be different I found but you have to do that and using practices as a tool to help that as well and speaking to why you're doing this interval why you're doing this rep so I think that last part there those are some great examples and I think that last part is another key evolution of like especially this it's not only physical because I think what happens is you move from oh I'm just going to worry about the physical to, oh, there's a mental, you know, a psychological component. And often that you separate them, right? You say, oh, go see like a sports psychologist yeah. or <laughs> yeah. like go, go talk to someone else instead of integrating them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying you shouldn't see a sports psychologist. They're great for developing skills, you know, but I, I'm a firm believer that it also has to be that last component of integrating it into the physical, meaning into the practices, into like developing those mindsets and those abilities and and um, crafting what how you want them to respond in a decision-making framework and psychologically uh, during practice. You know, what are you training up? What are you trying to do? those things where you can kind of work on them and ingrain them um, so that practice doesn't just become this, oh, we're just doing this work because we need to, you know, get these intervals in to boost this physical component. Often having, you know, I'll talk to athletes about 
what I want them to try and work on psychologically, you know, where I want them to quote unquote push, you know, for example, on a long progression run with someone who struggles mentally with staying engaged, I'll say like the middle miles, like push those. You've got to trust that you'll be okay to finish at the end, but like, don't save it because you're, you know, afraid and, and want to crank the last mile of this rep or, if we're doing 800s or miles or 400s, <clears throat> just don't save it for the end. I know you're going to be able to finish, like push the middle because this is what we're psychologically working on so that you can handle this in a race. Um, so you're kind of crafting the two uh, together, integrating them so that that way, like the physical, mental, psychological is getting better, improving and the decision-making is ingrained so that once they get to that moment or that crucible in the race, they've been like, Oh, I've been practicing this. I know what to do The I framed it right. You know, let's go get it. I love that. Steve. You know, it's, um, I stole from like Ron Warhurst, the all you got concept, right? So that, you know, in the Michigan, the last 400 of the workouts, just 400, all you got. And that was one thing I've been working on with athletes a lot. It's just all you got, just go, all you got, don't care, go. And what I talk to a lot of athletes who may struggle in the middle components, I love how you do that. I frame it as win this rep, win this mile. And I remind athletes, winning doesn't come easy. Winning requires effort. It requires stretching. It requires going beyond your current capabilities, right? So if you struggle with the middle portion of like, say, a you know standard tempo run, then I'll say, I don't care what happens in the final mile or final two miles. Like, you got to win this mile right now. Because if you don't win this mile, you can't win the next mile and so on and so forth. So it's zooming them in to like, look, if you blow up at the end, that's fine. At least you actually got closer to winning this mile and winning your race because you committed to winning now versus saying, oh, I'm going to save. Oh, I'm going to just delay. And you get this all the time where people, you know, say, oh, yeah, but my last 200 was this. Yeah, and you got second to last in the race. But I PR'd again. Yeah, but you got second to last. <laughs> like, that's nice. That's neat. But unless it was like the coach and you were like, hey, look, you have no chance in hell of actually winning the finish, you know, getting the tape first here, and that's the game is the PR. When you do have a shot, when you're physically capable and you're touting this kind of, uh, you know, facade, this this fake victory, this like, you know, you know, hollow victory, so to speak, it sets a bad precedent. And like that has always been the thing as a coach. I have, to me, the standard has always been winning. That is from day one in athletics. That is the standard. Now how we um, go about creating architecture for winning and what winning is defined for every athlete is different, of course, but that's the standard. And, you know, when I, Steve, when you and I have worked with you know, highly capable uh, national class athletes who have won and then didn't win and then trying to get them back to winning, you know, as well as I do, it's tough to show them a new path to victory versus going back on the old habit that got them the first round of, um, you know, laurels. Um, but as you evolve and as the game changes, as the competition changes, so must be the way you engineer and creating the 
capacity to win and the ability for yourself to win and the more important the process and like as Tom Dan like you know he was like we have this discussion about things are very temporary in this sport winning and losing is temporary running a time is temporary you can run 337 one week and then next week run 343 it's that we're not you know you're not when you run the time you're always going to run that time and so you know he's like well then what's the point i go well the point's the process because if you can get confidence in your process of decision making then you can you know always be around your objective like he's always around the podium finish on the roads in road miles he's always in that top three and always sometimes he has the absolute victory sometimes it's third sometimes it's fourth but he's always around that he's never finishing eighth ninth tenth um, because he has a process that he it works for him in a mindset that works for him to maximize his ability, his fitness uh, against the competition on the roads. And now we're trying to bring that to the track. And so, yeah, he won this one, but you know, who's to say he's going to win the next one. Don't know, but ideally, you know, he'll feel more confident going in and having a clear decision-making path. Love it. I think the process, the decision-making framework and path is incredibly important. Huge. So, Let's dive into another one of these things that Lee looked back at. What do you got, Steve? What's another one? Oh, man. Um, Here's something very early on in my coaching career. Endless core work (laughs) instead of, (laughs) you know, instead of actual strength work. Oh, thank God. Yes. Uh, Oh, man. Right? Yeah. Oh, my God. How dumb were we? Sorry. If you're doing lots of core, I don't mean to call you up. That was probably the stupidest thing ever. (laughs) Yes. And, and, and again, there's nuance in this. We're not saying like, don't do any quote unquote core work and core work has all these different meanings for everything. But I remember like there was a period of time where it was just like, everyone was just like core, core, core. It'll solve all your problems. Like, you do this in place of, you know, strength training, essentially. Don't pick up a weight because your muscles will it, blow up with one rep. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like core, core, core all day. And we spent hours, especially hours doing like planks oh, and crunches oh, and, you know, all, all those kinds of things to give us the appearance of some abs. And, you know, that was the thing to do. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, man, I haven't had an athlete do a plank in you know, almost a decade. Yep. You know, so the reasons why, right? The, the 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 reasons transfer. Does it transfer? And I see this all the time too. Like even athletes who in teams are like, oh yeah, we're gonna do, and it's a great um, concept. Like say Jay Johnson's lunge matrix, it's great. And I see people do this, or they do these prehab things or corrective ac- exercises. And I see people, you know, there's a lot of things going on. People do the activity, but there's no translation at all from this reductionist, isolated activity to the actual full body dynamic movement pattern that is running. Yep. I mean, I, that's that's it, you know. And <laughs> I, I think, you know, if, if we're sitting here saying, okay, 
Um, it's one of those things that is easy to do, easy to, you know, core work is easy to understand. Um, you can rationalize and justify it like strong core. Like that's, you know, the, the giveaway to me is like, it's sounds great on a superficial level, but then once you kind of dive deeper and be like, what in the world are we talking about? Like, what is this exercise actually doing to help us, um, you know, perform well, not just like these rationalizations and justifications. And then I think it really hit me when actually during um, grad school is one professor put up a slide that said, hey, I'm going to show you activation of your core muscles and, you know, doing different exercises and show the data. And it was like, guess what? You know, the squat activates all those core muscles, trains them you know, in a movement based way. I'm like, oh, this kind of makes sense. You know, of course, this is activated. Of course, this is engaged when we're doing this activity. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that's if we're looking at, okay, where do we move from now? I mean, some, if, if you want to do quote unquote, some core, like go have at it, but it can't, it can't be the thing, you know, the thing has to be be items that translate, which John and I have talked about a lot in terms of strength training. Actually, in the scholar program, we just had a whole seminar on strength training where we discussed what we did. Um, but you know, having core work be the foundation isn't isn't the answer, right? I think you know the understanding. Okay, that a lot of core that we have is either repetitive flexion or repet or sustained. Um, isometric contractions, right? And, you know, I understand a, a base level of strength and a lot of times with planks, it's plank self fatigue, right? It's not really training in that static environment what we want from a running environment. In a running environment, it is a turning on and off in a highly coordinated fashion, extensors and flexors, right? And two, you do have some axial rotation around the core where the transverse abdominis, the rectus abdominis, the obliques, uh, even the lats, um, you know, the hip flexors, the glutes, the hamstrings, and all these things are working in synergy, kind of contralaterally to turn on and off, on and off, on and off. So the question then is like, how much transfer do you get from something that is not doing this contralateral on and off exchange if, you know, for, to actually develop the nervous system requirements of those action potentials firing very rapidly, very quickly, but also shutting off. And so you see this with co-contractions, right? And athletes tend to strain, um, you know, a lot of flexor type muscles, especially runners. So quads, calves, um, hip flexors, right? And we go, oh, it's a weak core. Well, no, it's, it's an inability to allow the nervous system to actually, you know, just turn it off turn it off for a momentary, give it a relax and let the extensors turn on, right? So it's just like kind of the flexors are always on and they're always firing because the athlete has learned that flexors can also be stabilizers too. And, you know, the, the running form has the kind of where extensors are the key. Then they have kind of the, where the flexors are the key. And then they have where all the leg muscles and quote unquote core muscles in the body are in a momentary stabilization pattern when you have that full body weight right over your um, stance leg. 
but also too, the reason a squat works really well and the reason squats are important because if you think about how the running, the joints move in a running form, well, there's a, a depression, a compression phase where you're getting flexion, tri triple flexion at the hip, knee, and the ankle. That's a squat. But then also too, when that moment right before toe off, ideally you're getting triple extension at the hip, knee, and uh, ankle, right? Which is also a squat. So it's, you just don't have the, the mass of the body moving forward in a forward projection. It's just going up and down. But to me, doing that squat, a lot more transferable in how the joints move, how the muscles fire, you know, as you're going down, more flexors. And as you're coming up, more extensors are firing. And going back and forth like that, you can get a lot better transfer out of that type of motion than in static plank holding until you fail with lordosis and kyphosis in the spine, this unnecessary rounding just to kind of hold this pattern. And when, you know, this is what Steve and I talk about a lot is, you know, and so does Bonderchuk, so does uh, Martin Basinger, Vern Gambetta, you know, you name it, Dan Path. What is the transferability? If you only have so much time in the day to actually ask an athlete to do something and, you know, have activity, how might how valuable is this activity versus that activity? And remember, all these strength conditioning and core work things are just drills, right? So if it doesn't create awareness in the athlete about this muscle group area firing or being engaged or moving in like in this way or harmony or pattern that then translates and transfers to actual running motion, then you're kind of also wasting your time too because it's not clicking. Wickets are great. Wickets are great if they can then translate to the athlete putting the foot down with a lot of force and power, getting that compression in the leg and then popping up to extension while running without wickets. If you're doing all these wickets and then it's not transferring and they're just trying to get over the hurdle, you got to ask yourself, okay, it's not working with this athlete. Do we keep doing wickets or do we try to do some other drill that will get that aha moment that will then transfer to the thing that matters most, which is the actual running. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I think you summarized that up perfectly. So let's uh, dive into another one, John. You got another one that you used to do that you're just like, oh, what was I thinking? Yeah, uh, just counting numbers to try to satisfy the physiological gods. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the, you know, kind of the cult of mileage is king. The more miles we run, the more physiologically fit we get. And you know, for beginners, there is a certain degree of truth to that because it's the clean slate phenomenon. Um, but I think a lot of times what happens is you're like, oh, they just got better. They ran more miles. Well, who are they? What age are they? Because remember, training influences the direction. Hormones influence the magnitude of adaptation. So we're talking about, you know, pubescent adolescence, high school, college boys, like, yeah, they ran more miles. They got faster. Well, they also are just flood of testosterone and growth hormones, too, from the pituitary gland. So, you know, I don't know if you can make that distinct correlation. Now, if they spent more time practicing skill-specific work in terms of their leg speed, in terms of mechanics, in terms of integrity of movement, 
that does translate to mileage, but we, the way I think about practice now is I think of time, duration, hours, and minutes. I have no idea how many miles a week Daniel Herrera runs. Haven't for five years. He hasn't a clue either. We just know now there are certain time horizons for certain types of activities that are advantageous, right? A recovery run up to about 40 minutes, no more than 50 minutes, can have a positive hormonal impact on growth hormones, testosterone release, right? When you start to get over that, different things, engagements happen. A run, a longer-ish run in about 60 to 80 minutes, kind of on an empty stomach, can manipulate fatty acid substrate utilization better than, you know, another activity, right? So if that's important to advance that capacity, then you want to do some of that, right? We know, you know, the neuromuscular system can sustain without oxygen 7 to 45 seconds of high frequency, high intensity, high leg exchange movement activity. Then you need three about three minutes plus to fully resynthesize ATP. So training now then becomes knowing these time horizons for things, making sure we're not asking athletes to do things that aren't um, simpatico with that. So I'm not going to call a recovery run 90 minutes. You just can't do that. It's an aerobic, easier aerobic-based run where we're working on a special quality, but there is a certain mechanical fatigue, a certain physiological fatigue associated with that. A recovery run is 20 to 40 minutes in that range. And how long should they go? However long in that period feels good. If you just are running and you just feel tired and just uh, not feeling that great and you get to 20 minutes and it's still a struggle bus, you're done. It's fine. But to be like, oh, well, I got to get 80 miles in this week no matter what. And the bet in most ways people get more mileage in is to overrun the recovery either in pace and duration, and then you end up not getting recovered because you try and satisfy the mileage gods, well, then the whole, um, you know, proposition and training uh, stimulus is muted, right? And so it doesn't matter. What matters is the sequence of activities, intensity recovery, intensity recovery, and the type of intensity you have is dependent, again, on the training direction and adaptation you want. But recovery is about the same no matter if you're dealing with 800-meter runners or even marathoners, right? Like you're still going to have that 20 to 40-minute window built in because the science is pretty clear on this. Um, so who cares how many miles you get in that 40 minutes? It can be 9-minute pace, 8-minute pace. Who cares? All that cares is you're just doing an activity for that duration to get the stimulus. That's it. Yeah, you know, I think it gets to something larger that is um, happens, especially early on, and that we over-index on things that we can measure. Oh, love that. And we can, you know, we we measure mileage. We measure, you know, and we, we can measure about, easily. Yes, yes, that's the key, that we can measure easily. We measure mileage. We can measure our intervals, block speeds, et cetera. So we go nuts on it, you know? And I think, I think it's like it's an easy thing to measure, so that's why we control it, you know. And it's easy to dictate it, so that's why we dictate it. Um, yeah, like I hate, I hate the cross country mileage club. Hate it, hate them. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, because I think every high school had one of those. I mean, we definitely had one of those. Um, 
and it works to get people motivated to degree, but then you're like motivating, you know, them by joining this club, getting this shirt and accumulating this volume, which sometimes can backfire. And you got to remember like the king of volume, the grandfather of volume, right? Lydiard or what have you, but also Bowerman shared this too. It was time trials. Time trials demonstrated they were like kind of like quizzes of training. Yeah. Every two to three weeks they do a time trial, a little pop quiz, or I mean, you knew it was coming, a little quiz. Were you progressing and adapting in the direction we wanted? Whether it was, you know, Bowerman loved three laps. Bowerman loved those 13, 20 yards or 1,200 meters a day. Lydiard liked, you know, miles or something like that. You're better off just making that your club, right? Advancing through that. If you're a cross country coach and you're listening, well, how do, if you can get that athlete to run, okay, the three lap time trial every two weeks, a little faster, a little faster, there's progression there and there's specificity there. You're working VO2 max, you're working maximum cardiac output, you know, a lot of, you know, you're working high grade um, lactic um, buffering capacity. Like that's, there's gold, but to say, oh yeah, you ran a lot of slow crappy miles, you know, at six minute or at uh, nine minute pace. And now we expect you to be a fast cross country runner. I don't think the transfer is there. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, I think that it's, again, it just comes back to it's the easiest thing to do. And Lydiard, I love that you pointed out that he didn't measure progress from it. And as we talk about in the scholar program, as we talked about in the past, uh, Lydiard experimented with mileage and said, this is what they need to do. But a lot of times we get caught up in Lydiard and think like he meant 100 miles a week. But Lydiard's mileage had like very specific purposes, mm-hmm. and that was the key to and it. And 100 miles was it's, pretty moderate because remember, Lydiard self experimented on a marathon a day, like 200 miles yeah. a week on himself, right? So, and yeah, and, and and also, like, he recognized and said, like, hey, this long run thing, they had this very hilly, mountainous, course, you know. Yep. And said like, Hey, we're going to essentially, you know, run this pretty hard. Um, it's no different if you've read running with the Buffaloes and you've, you know, you've seen Colorado take on their, uh, their, their long run. Like, or I mean, NAU with a four road, you know? Yep. It, it all has its kind of specific purpose. Right. And I think that is what's lost in there is that Lydiard was trying to do something before then, transitioning over to another period where he was going to do something else right the steady yeah the steady uphill long run is very very valuable uh up does this they have like um cz trail um you know they do workouts on it or like what looks like really moderate pace stuff like oh you know six miles at six minute pace up this steady incline and i mean this is a trail that goes for 18 miles there's another trail out here that you know i utilized a lot um when working with half marathoners it's called banks vernonia trail out uh, just a little west of portland 24 mile steady incline just that good incline no break right and it's beautiful because it's like it works you know better posture better power better glute activation also a certain degree of toughness you don't have to run as fast so it's not as much like uh, mechanical um, force happening because you're also hitting ground a little earlier. So a lot of good things going to happen on that steady long run uphill. And the key is to run it steady, not easy. 
Um, but if you look through, again, a lot of, as Steve said, different training schools uh, and coaches and programs, that's a key component to a lot of endurance success, you know, from about 10K up to the marathon. Oh, yeah, 100%. So, which is also something that I think, you know, uh, early on, it's just, we think the long run is just about accumulating volume, but that's, it's another specific workout that can be utilized uh, to a large degree as Lydiard Wetmore and others have shown. Mm -hmm. Well, let's last All one, right. Steve. Let's do one more. This one will be quick and easy. Copy okay, and pasting what... workouts from elites and pros to less capable athletes. Yes, I love it. I'm glad you brought this up because this is so rampant in our coaching and so easy to do and something that we all did very oh, early Oh, yeah, on. I get it. Yeah, and especially as most of the time you get into coaching, coaching younger athletes, and where do you look? You see what the pros do, you see what the leads do, and you say, oh, this workout's great. And all of a sudden you apply it to your 16, 17, 18, 19, whatever, 20 year old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't quite work as well. Yeah. Even if you, you know, um, kind of edit the paces and recovery intervals, right. Yeah. Or you edit the durations. The key is not to say, okay, oh, they did this workout. They're ready to go. The key is to understand what led to them to be able to do this workout. What type of work you know, what did they do prior going into this workout? What was the um, overall context from a training and also race preparedness standpoint of that workout? And what were they trying to harness? What were they trying to, um, you know, better? And so when you look at, everyone does mile repeats. Why? Why? Because someone, somewhere some down the road, someone's like, oh yeah, we're gonna do mile repeats. And it used to just be when you look through Bowerman, no narrow mile repeat, a lot of 1200 repeats, Dillinger two, a lot of 1200 repeats. And when you start to think about it too, from a scientific perspective, we know at three minutes, three minutes of good hard running has a lot of valuable transfer to, um, you know, maximum velocity of oxygen uptake. Um, again, that intense lactate um, dynamics and buffering, you know, uh, capacity building all that good stuff. And you have, you can go up to six minutes. This is true. Do you need to do miles to get the same? No. I mean, so if you know the time you're looking for in the recovery horizons, you can even piecemeal it a little bit different too. There was a, a coach who had, um, you know, sent a direct message uh, to me on Twitter. And he's like, God, having this athlete who was a four, eight runner, you know, uh, in high school, I'm working with now in college, she's having a lot of tra trouble with the tempo runs. She's, it's not clicking. I go, just go 100 meter on, 100 meter off. Like, at least she'll get 100 meters. And if you just do the math, like, how long you want to run your tempo run, coach? 20 minutes? Great. So do 20 minutes worth 100 meter on, 100 meter off. And that's a good building activity where they, it's very much like Igloy. The system won't know the physiological system won't know the difference between 100 meter on 100 meter off the nervous system the mechanical system will get a little reprieve and will actually be able to produce more of what you want for half the time 10 minutes versus getting through and you know what was happening eight minutes and then just kind of like slogging and falling apart and pushing and not really getting a nervous system benefit or mechanical benefit out of it so 
thinking different like that, you don't need to do 20 minutes straight through as long as you're working for 20 minutes in this kind of seesaw. And that's the beauty of intervals is you can graduate the athlete to that. I said, oh, the progressions then have them do 100 meter on, 100 meter off. Then have them do 200 on, 100 meter off. Then have them do three. And then have, to have them do four. And then it will start to positively compound and accelerate. And then you do, then have them do a half mile. Then have them do a mile. And then start to just take out the 100 meter reprieve and recovery, right? And all of a sudden it's like, boom, that progress. And he's like, yeah, it's been working great. Got an update from him a couple weeks afterwards. Like, She's really responding well. She's feeling positive about it. She's feeling encouraged. Tempo runs aren't like the thing she's like, oh, I hate this so much and already feel like defeated before she even goes into it. And that's what you want in training is you want that building, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally. Yep. Couldn't have summed it up better. I think, you know, I think it's spot on and I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a difference and it's very easy to deflect from what the best of the best do and say, hey, I'm going to tamper this down and apply it. But you got to do you got to tackle the problem in front of you. And that's the great example of how you tackle the problem in front of you and not just copy the workout. The magic isn't in the 20 minute tempo run or the, you know, 10 by K repeat that someone did. It's that they were tackling a problem both physiologically and psychologically. Mm -hmm. And that's what they needed to do to get there. What your athletes do, you know, you might have to address that problem differently. Yeah, and that's, you know, this is the point of the podcast. This is the point of the scholar program. And I think this is also the point of coaching is to, you know, help graduate people to self-sufficiency. And whether you're graduating athletes or coaches, we want you to be self-sufficient so you can make, as we talked about earlier, better decisions in the moment. You have different um, situations. And it's that going back to that John Boyd OODA loop that you can make swifter, better decisions because of your experience, because of your familiarity, because of your education, because of your training. This is the value of the scholar program and, you know, just the value of coaches, you know, kind of talking back and forth and even like our training talk lives that we do once a month. The value is in that, is in being able to see how different people solve the problem differently, had success so that when you are faced as a coach with a problem in training, uh, you know, in racing and preparation, you then have a better skill set, a more robust toolbox to help that athlete who's standing there in front of you um, come up with the best solution for them to yield the best outcome. Love it. It's a beautiful summary of what we're trying to do and what others are trying to do. So if you're you're interested, you know, jump on the jump on the train, get on the boat. Hitch a ride because that's what we're trying to do is is kind of move people from dependence to independence. That's right. And our next training talk live is every, you know, they're now regular intervals. They're going to be coming at you the second Sunday of every month. So we're going to start the new one, rolling out the new one here. If you don't know what it is, Steve does a monologue podcast. I do a monologue podcast. We send out to the members. You get our kind of isolated take. Then we all come together and talk about what, Steve and I offered, or even what the members are doing themselves and, you know, just a roundabout discussion, not necessarily dominated by Steve or I, something where everyone kind of comes to the table, breaks bread, so to speak, over Zoom. And we, you know, we just leave just having kind of like, as they say, shoot the shit, but just get a better understanding about different ways to solve very um, familiar and very important, but also not so easy uh, problems that we might face in coaching and training athletes.
All right. If you're interested, check out the Scholar Program. Until next time, we hope that you, you know, learn from some of our evolutions and mistakes. And if not, you know, we hopefully gave the message board some fodder <laughs> for us to, uh, you know, to hate on us. Some oh, more. they don't need so, any fuel. I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll find something else, too. That's true. All right. Until next time, everybody. Thanks for listening.